I've seen you as like your name being listed as Brian Lewis Saunders and Brian Saunders. What do you prefer to go by? Well, I go by, I guess, Brian Lewis Saunders because on there's a whole lot of Brian Saunders online. And so some of them, it's, it can be kind of confusing. And now there's an artist named Dewey Brian Saunders, spelled with the same way, Brian, with a Y. And he's like, did some art with marijuana or something like that. And so now it's like even more room for confusion. So I'm just keeping it my with my middle name. But I'm really in life, people don't call me Brian Lewis Saunders. You know, people just call me Brian or Brian Saunders or something. But for, for social media presence and stuff like that. All right. That sounds great. I just sort of wanted to know what to refer to you as when I title the episode, that's all. I was Mr. Brain Sander because I used to get junk mail with my name spelled wrong all the time. Snail mail, dear Mr. Brain Sander or dear Brain Sanderson. (laughs) But I just recently switched my Instagram to Brian Lewis Saunders because I hadn't gotten any Brain Sander junk mail in a couple years now, I think two years or so. (laughs) <laughs> good, good. Now, I noticed something right off the bat. You were born in Washington, D.C. I was raised in Arlington, Virginia. So were you actually from D.C.? Because we all say D.C. No, I was born in D.C., but the first few years were in Arlington, too. And then the older I got, Fairfax County, Manassas, there was a time I went back to D.C., but then I ended up even going as far as Warrington and then even Culpeper for a little while, but then said, hell with Virginia, I'm going to Tennessee. And then I've been in Tennessee for quite a while. I went from Tennessee to North Carolina, and then I was institutionalized in North Carolina and then ended up getting rescued by my family and then went to China. And then after I got back from China, I came back to Tennessee because it was so inexpensive here. I really love it. But it's getting expensive here now, too. Sadly, everywhere is getting more expensive. Yeah. How is it over there? Relatively inexpensive. Nice. You know, I mean, like, I'm in Prague in Uh the Czech Republic, and for a major metropolitan area, it's pretty affordable still. Nice. Cheaper than, say, like Paris or... Oh, goodness, yes. Yes, yes. (laughs) Even cheaper than, like, Kreuzberg in Berlin or something? Kreuzberg... No, Berlin is very expensive. So yeah, Prague would be still be cheaper than that. At wow, this point. I mean, that's cool. We're, we're we're closer to more like Budapest and Warsaw oh. as far as prices kind oh, of thing. I see. So we're because we were part. Well, we, I say we. I just live here, but the Czech Republic was was part of the the uh, the Russian Eastern Bloc. So all those countries generally are a little less expensive. Uh-huh. So like your your Poland, Hungary, Croatia, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and then when you get to the other side, so Paris, Italy, France, uh, yeah, um, uh, Spain, those are generally more expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I went to Budapest not too terribly long ago, within the last few years, for the first time ever, for an artist talk. I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I got a home-cooked meal, authentic Hungarian home-cooked meal and stuff, and it was really wonderful. It was a whole bunch of different dishes, and it it was really, really delicious, though. It was better than 
like if I had just not, what I did was I requested to have a home cooked meal as part of the things I needed for my, for my fee or whatever. And then I said, oh, I'm going to do this every single time from now on, because it made it so, it was a lot less culture shock because as soon as I got there, I had somewhere to go and eat and it was close. It wasn't like a restaurant or something. And it just made like a real smooth transition going from Tennessee to to there with the introduction of a home-cooked meal. <laughs> well, if you've been to Budapest, then you're actually – it's Prague is very similar. Really? Yeah. I mean, people in Prague will hate me for saying it. But, yeah, it, they're pretty similar in, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Nice. There was one place where they had had like a, a revolution or something, and they still had bullet holes in the – in the walls. I know the neighborhood you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> I did some rubbings for my uh, self-portrait that day, rubbings of the bullet holes. It was first time ever that I've done that. It was really it was really cool. I'm interested in your self-portrait project as a whole. Now, mm-hmm. so now you've been doing it since when did it start? Was it March something? Of March 95. 30th? Yeah, March. So now how many are you up to now? <laughs> my book you good. You actually have a. Yeah. Do you like how do you like number them? Like how do you know? Yeah, this is book number one forty three, and the mm-hmm. first one is number twelve thousand five hundred and fifty eight. And I scan them in. I didn't used to, but I've got caught up scanning. And now when I'm done with about a book or two, sometimes I get backed up like a couple books. Once I get it finish a book or two, then I'll scan them back in and then I have like have them backed up on other stuff. One of the cool things about scanning them is, well, most of my friends were worried about a fire. Like if you can see these plastic bags, they all have mm-hmm. books in them. But I've lived in places before that have had like pests, like cockroaches and bed bugs and stuff like that. So I keep them all in plastic, but my friends still worry about them with fire in in case of a fire or something like that. This wall right here, there's no real risk of fire unless a, a lightning hits the cable antenna or something on this wall. There's not really much of a risk of that because there's no tenants on this side, but there is on this other side. But I started scanning them in just in case of like fire damage or something like that. But now that once I got them scanned in, I was able to start doing things with them, manipulating them and making folders of like headaches or depression or happiness, joy. I have a happy joy folder and a peaceful plus folder which is peaceful, but it also has some joy in it too. Then I started making slideshows. And so now I can go back in time. It's way better than like a diary or something because all of the pictures have the evidence, like the the marks, the traces of my feelings. So when I look at them in a slideshow, I can go back and see every single time I was joyous and then it starts changing my brain chemistry over time watching the video and I can become more peaceful. But it's more, I found that it's more preventive than it is therapeutic because if I'm like really pissed off or something, I've already got these like anger type of brain chemistries, brain chemicals going through. And so then experiencing this joy, it's a very weak transformation, very mild effect. But if I think I'm going to be 
anxious if I have like something coming up where like during the pandemic, I had to have the AC heater people come in, the repair people come in. And um, so I thought, oh, God, you know, here's this virus and here's these strangers coming in and everything. I don't know if they're going to be infected or not. Or something. So I knew I was going to be anxious. Well, I could watch that video beforehand and then get all of these peaceful memories releasing the, I don't know what, you, what they are, but I don't know which, what chemicals they are. I'm not exactly sure how, how it works. But it, it's some type of chemicals. I can feel a chemical change. It's like, I guess, how people meditate and stuff. It's kind of like that. I've never been good at meditation. I keep trying and my brain just won't shut off. It's too active. Far too active. Yeah, I can empathize with that. Now, with your project, so you've got these thousands and thousands of pieces, but they're all, are now, are they all still in the books or have you taken any out of the books? Do you do any not in books? Like what's the nature of the media, the, the pieces themselves? It's changed over time. In the beginning, it was all one work of art and they were all supposed to stay together. But then over time, the meaning of it changed and different things happened. And at first, I was doing it to purge my negative feelings, more for therapy and more for like practicing learning how to draw and stuff like that with the rep repetition. But then over time, it became more of a, a lot more different tools. I started developing a lot more different uses for it. And so then once that happened, I started realizing the influences of different things upon me, like my environments and stuff. So I started changing my environments and doing exper doing drawing experiments with that. And then once I started getting into the sensory experiments with the drawings, then I started taking them out and having exhibits and stuff like that with those subsections or whatever of it. But I don't sell those. I keep them, but they're just not in the books. They're like separate and frameable so that they can like travel around and stuff. I've had quite a few shows in Europe, mostly Western Europe, mostly not in U S too much. And then I have to, you know, have to ship them and stuff like that. Well, that was going to be one of my questions is like, I'm from America and America is not very receptive to quote unquote, like outsider artists, you know, kind of things. Right. Whereas Europe is much more accepting of it and much more embracing of it. And so like, and, and then of course you're known for the, the drug series. That's right. the thing that sort of got, got you on, on the, the road of this. So like, has the art world sort of embraced you in some way? No, not at all. <laughs> but I had had a gallery one time, I guess it's been a few years now, probably maybe around 2013 or something. I can't remember. It's been a few years now. It was a real experience, totally different experience. I prefer institutional exhibitions. Oh, we all do. Oh, really? I didn't know. I, I thought most artists would probably prefer like galleries and stuff, but I, I find these uh, other cultural centers and museums much, much better. Well, they're different. I mean, a, a gallery is meant as like marketing and sales, and they're interested or pretty much only in selling, whereas institutions are interested in education, learning, exposure, you know, opening uh, people's horizons. So it's always much nicer. And it's almost a little bit more flattering if you're invited to be part of an institution than a gallery. But, but I'll take a gallery if gallery wants to represent me. 
Yeah, that's the way I was at first. I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. But I was more interested in selling catalogs than I was the work. You know, I wanted to sell like merch because um, in between this time of the gallery and only doing self-portraits and doing experiments periodically, I was also a, a became a well-known spoken word artist. And so I was traveling around quite a bit doing this type of performance. Some performance art, but mostly spoken word. Multimedia with videos and music and stuff, but also vocals. So then I thought, well, I, when the opportunity came along for a gallery, I thought, well, I'll try it and stuff. But it was shocking to me <laughs> how it was. It was shocking. I would love to hear, like, what, what was shocking about it? Well, I'd always believed, because I came from slightly less privilege, I'd say, than a lot of people. I always had this kind of naive belief that privileged people, people in the upper classes, have like more education, better education, and better things. Manners. Well, <laughs> yeah, just things like this. You think they're, you know, that they're more culturally refined and they've gone to better colleges and stuff like this. Nope. They simply have more money. Yeah. Yeah. That's what was so shocking to me. It, it blew my, it absolutely blew my mind. How I came to find that out about that was I had this exhibit. It's kind of a little bit of a long story, but my, I had this art exhibit where I collect stuff too because of my OCD. And one of the things I have, one of the things I collect are projective and apperceptive psychological tests. And so I've got one of the largest privately owned psychological tests in the world. One of them that I had multiples of, I, well, I got this idea that I could take my own tests. I wouldn't have to rely on the psychologist if I did therapy on top of the diagnostic tools then I could get rid of the middleman and not even need a shrink for all this type of stuff. So I was just basically doing art on top of these vague test cards. And then by filling in how I responded to these test cards, I could like, if I learned about the test cards, which I did, and studied how to evaluate them, then I, I could see th my own biases and learn about myself more than the doctor could because a doctor evaluating my test could learn more about himself than he could about me. Because based on my answers, they wouldn't know if I was like, my vocal expression was based on a dream or an imagination situation or a, po a real traumatic incident. You know, just saying what I see on these cards, they have no idea what's really, you know, what's happening and stuff. So it's telling them more about themselves than it was about me. And so, I had like these sets of cards and then they decided we'll do this. We'll have a big, huge, like hardbound catalog with all of these nice test cards and stuff like that. But then I came to find out that when I got there for the exhibition, they said they invited me over to one of the gallery owner's houses and he had this giant painting above his couch. And they were saying, you know, look at this painting. We paid, you know, $30,000 for this painting. And they said, if you make your paintings as big as this painting, we can get, you know, $30,000. We can get a lot of money for them and stuff. And I was like, yeah, but my paintings are on top of these diagnostic tools that are like vintage, that are like real, that, you know, who knows how many children 
were evaluated on these tests and with all of these doctors, Freudian perversions and stuff, and the way they've faded over time, like the actual, I only painted in, in the middle of the story on some of them. On some of them, I left that radiating border of age. So it was like a glowing magical thing, like the material itself. It wasn't just like painting on a piece of paper. It was like on an actual tool that had been used, but they could not understand any of that. They, they couldn't recognize any of the value of having something be on a, on a physical thing like that. So then they were, well, anyways, they shows me this giant painting over this couch. And right away, I recognized that the painting was of the interior of an art museum. And right in the middle of the painting was a famous Kiki Smith sculpture called Tail, T-A-L-E, of her, I think, on all fours, naked, crawling, with a giant turd stretching out on the gallery. And then there was this family of tourists standing behind the sculpture in this painting. And I said, oh, that's Kiki Smith. And they said, no, 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 it's this other artist. I was like, yeah, but this sculpture is Kiki Smith. I said, that's what they're looking at. And I I said, what's the title of this painting? I thought I couldn't remember the title of the Kiki Smith sculpture, but I thought, you know, it, it must reference this or something like that, possibly. And they said, oh, it doesn't have a title the painting that doesn't have a title, it's untitled. And then I looked right at the bottom right-hand corner of the, and the family in the picture was looking at this Kiki Smith sculpture and they were like in shock, like, like that. And they were standing there. And then I looked right at the bottom of the painting and the title was painted right on the painting. And it said, I think it's time for us to go home now. And it was like a conservative family staring at a Kiki Smith sculpture painting. The people paid $30,000 for a painting that, had a title that they didn't even know the title and the title was painted on the painting. And then I thought, wow, this is really ignorant. It's a very unfortunate situation that happens all too frequently. Like I've recently been going through, like my family's uh, getting older and we've been looking through our family collection of art and stuff. And it was very, my parents keep going like, well, do you like this piece? And I'm like, no, I I actually don't like that piece, but I love this other piece that they don't really care for very much. And it's not because like the piece is amazing, let's say like you're, or, or famous or valuable, but because I have some connection to it, I have some relationship to it. I have some story with it like that. Those are the things that connect with me. And so I find it utterly fascinating when people have art and they don't know any of the stories behind it. Yeah. And, and even when this, yeah, it's, it's, it's mine. It, it blew my mind. And then uh, they said, uh, oh yeah, they said, well, can you get your friends in Tennessee? You paint your little pictures and then get your friends in Tennessee to like, blow them up bigger and paint them and we'll pay and stuff. And then I was just like, nah, it was over. I just, then like, they took me to lunches and stuff with like collectors and they would say like, you know, where do you imagine yourself in five years? And I was like, exactly where I am right now, doing exactly what I'm doing right now, loving what I'm doing and stuff. But that wasn't like what they wanted to hear. And then they... Absolutely not, no. <laughs> and then they, they said... Oh well, this collector's going is bought your some of your art or something, and then, but then they were like saying how they had to store it in like this, not a mini storage, but like a storage facility because his wife wasn't supposed to know he was spending more money on art and all this stuff. And I was just like, this is like the most sleaziest type of like ignorant stuff. And then I've never dealt with any of it ever again. I've had gallery shows since then, but it's all been with the 
understanding that we're just going to be selling my books to artists for show and you know we're selling my basically merchandise and stuff and and then it's better for me like that as an artist i also am an artist and i find storage like to be a pain in the ass but then there's always the point of like if and when something happens to you so let's say you die or you know even 50 years from now when you die what do you hope happens to all of these self-portraits? Well, I don't really know because I'm still creating new meanings out of them. And most of the meanings are personal and they're like helpful to me as tools, but they wouldn't be to anyone else. And so part of me is like, well, they'll just be thrown in the trash because they'll be of no use, like no real practical utilitarian use to anyone else. But then I hope to one day develop a meaning that's bigger and beyond just my own individual use. So then I don't, I don't know what that would be. So I don't know how, I don't know what that would, I don't know what that would involve, but I don't think I'll live 50 years. I've only got one and a half lungs and I've got asthma and emphysematic blisters and on my other, on what's left of my lungs. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to just <laughs> keep figuring out what I'm doing. <laughs> how, wait, how old are you? 52. Okay. We're about the same age. I'm 48 this year. Pretty close. You go to school in uh, Northern Virginia? I did. I went to Yorktown High School. Oh, that's then... where my family went. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's where I grew up. If that 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 neighborhood, I could walk to Yorktown in three minutes from my house that I grew up in. Huh, that's cool. I'm trying to think where I lived in when I was a child. Marymount College was really close. I lived right across the street from Marymount. Oh, okay. Wow. Washington Golf and Country Club. Yeah, my grandfather was a member there. I was a member there oh, until cool. they kicked me out. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I caused way too much trouble there and, and they threw me they kicked me out of the club, so that's that's wow. fine. But yeah, but that's we where probably I probably went up. to pool in the summertime at the same time then. Quite probably. You ever went to yeah. the pool there. So I went to I the was pool. always at the pool there. Me too. Oh, I love their high dives. That's the only pool I ever got to go to that had the high dives like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The three meter dive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we probably crossed paths at some point in our youth. Yeah, definitely. I was part of the swimming and the diving team at the country club, actually, for up until I was 16 years old. Wow. So I'm sure we, we crossed paths. Wow. That's, that's crazy. What a small world. It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my father was the reverend at a, at a church down by Chain Bridge. Huh. I don't. I wouldn't remember the name of the church my grandparents went to. It's a tucked away church. It wouldn't. Have, it's not an obvious church. So, but yeah. So that's that's why it's one of those weird things because like you were talking about like people with money and all this kind of stuff. Like I grew up there in this very wealthy neighborhood where there was like multi million dollar homes, you know, senators, congressmen, all uh -huh, kinds of people uh -huh. living all around me. Uh -huh. But my dad was a minister, so we were you know, blue collar, maybe high, high blue collar, but living in this very expensive place because the church put my dad right. up in, in the neighborhood kind of uh -huh. thing. So 
I saw a lot of very wealthy people who had very bad taste in my youth. Oh, wow. My grandparents, my grandfather, he grew up really poor in D.C., but worked his way up with like a photo company developing pictures and then he like bought his own and then they ended up printing other stuff besides photographs and they did like they ended up getting a contract to do like the zip code book it was like a telephone book but it was all the nation's zip codes and stuff and so he was on the very peripheral of the people that had money but he always was like trying to advance his economic status so he lived there and was part of the country club and stuff but it was part of him like getting higher and higher and uh, the only reason my father was a member of the country club was because the country club knew that having a minister as a member meant the minister would encourage uh weddings and other parties and stuff there so, nice. so it, was, it, it was a cunning plan on the country yeah. club's part to have a minister as a member uh-huh. to try and get more revenues <laughs> i think they did that when cable tv first was coming out and they had someone that was involved in cable before you know it was a big thing they had a cable tv member and then they got the members and and it became like a real profitable thing (laughs) early influencers yeah yeah totally social influencers (laughs) yeah what what school did you go to growing up i went to a bunch because i was a real disturbed child so i went to herndon and then I went and I went to Massanutten Military Academy. I went to Fauquier County and then I dropped out. I didn't never finish high school. So Herndon was the only Northern Virginia high school, I'd say. I know Massanutten. I used to go skiing there. They had a military school, but it was strict. And it was for mostly troubled kids, but then we all realized really early on that it was just other kids were in charge of the kids. And so after a few so many weeks, we all just revolted and didn't do anything. But then it got really abusive. They started locking us in closets and hosing us with water and stuff like that and catching us running away and stuff. And it was just, it became hell. But it it was fun for a while after it was it was torture then fun and then torture again <laughs> well I, actually i'm sort of interested too about your childhood so like you're cre- you're very creative and very productive but where did that come from were your parents creative did you have some interesting teachers like what was the thing that sort of introduced you to being an artist well i'd say my my grand my mom was a single mom for a little while because my biological father was a pagan and he his best friend had gotten arrested and sent to prison for having seven dead bodies buried in his backyard in southern maryland and they assumed that all of the killings were pagan were pagan involved or like overdoses different stuff but they only one of them owned property and that was my father my biological father's best friend so they buried him there at the one guy, the one pagan that owned property, they buried him in his backyard. Well, my mom, he was telling my mom he had to do different types of stuff. And my mom, he was mean to her in different ways. And so she left him. And then she was a single mom. And then I was with my grandparents in Arlington. This is toddler age, back and forth between my mother and my grandparents. And then at that time, they, I was hyperactive and stuff as a toddler, so they sent me to a 
art class, like a drawing class, but everyone else was like adults and I was a toddler. And so I just became the model. They never really like one time they let me draw a picture of a zoo, a monkey is in a zoo or something. And then after that, they were always like having me hold like a baseball bat or something like this. And that was just the model, but the teacher, and I think this had a big, huge, profound influence on me. And I've never really told anyone about this before, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. The teacher was obsessed with painting brown paper grocery bags. And so he had tons and tons of canvases of just crumpled up brown paper bags. And I remember asking like what that was about or something, but couldn't really understand it. Couldn't, wasn't really explained to me really well. They, it was just something like, this is what he, I'm doing right now, or this is what the teacher's doing right now or something like that. But then I didn't do art again, maybe tried to draw Peanuts cartoons and stuff, something like that, little cartoons and stuff for my grandmother. And then I didn't take art in high school or anything, but my great aunt, she pressed flowers, like pick flowers and put them in zip code books and stuff like that. (laughs) Because they uh, were available. Yeah. Then my grandmother did some of that and they would, uh, I think they got into quilting a little bit. And then my mother was into sewing, like sewed my clothes and stuff for a while. And so there was always this type of practical craft type of stuff going on around me, arts and things, but it was more craft oriented. My mom tried painting a little while and my my great aunt tried painting for a little while. But then I, I went to prison and mental hospitals and different stuff. And then after I went to college, I took... I thought I would be a writer in college, but they didn't encourage creativity. Even in the creative writing class, they didn't encourage creativity. They wanted you to write what they wanted you, you to write. So I thought, well, art has got to let you be creative. Drawing. When, so that's what I did. I took that, and then I fought with every ounce of my being, every class, every day, every semester, and then graduated. But it, it was a battle. It was a real hard battle. Oh, I know. I, I I had my fair share of battles in school. I have this one teacher. I can't. I don't remember her name, and I probably shouldn't say her name even if I did. But she one day, I, I worked on this project for like a whole week trying to do this thing, and I put it up, and she, she was like, that's wrong. And I was like, who the fuck are you as an art teacher to say <laughs> wrong? Like that, that's such a bad word to use to yeah. a, a young artist. And so I ended up like complaining to the dean of the school and got her fired for, wow. for doing that. Like, wow. it was just like, you don't say, there are so many things you could say, but the word wrong is not something that should come out of an art professor's mouth. Yeah. And they would have critiques and I would be sticking up for uh, everyone's, it seemed like quite often, someone would draw a picture of a person for figure drawing class and their hand would be too small. And the teacher would say, oh, this is really great. I like this, but look, you made these little tiny hands, which is a common mistake for people drawing, first learning how to draw figures, they'll draw tiny hands. And But then with critique, I'd say, yeah, but the tiny hands are what makes it interesting for me. If it didn't have these like bizarrely tiny hands, you know, this, it would just be like everyone else's picture and stuff. So I'm thinking these tiny hands are great, (laughs) you know, but it was just a real 
struggle. It's interesting because that's hard because I'm a professor. So like, so I'm take I'm going to defend that professor on that because like <laughs> the, the idea that we have as professors is that we're trying to teach you sort of how to do it right, right. during your time in school. So do it the proper way. The, the, so that once you leave school, you know how to do it correctly, th then giving you the opportunity to know how and why to do it incorrectly. Right. for the rest of your career right, right that makes sense yeah that's my defense and i'm sticking to it <laughs> yeah there's lots of things like that like don't use green paint straight out of the tube and stuff i had teachers that said never use paint out of the tube period no colors ever to like you always mix colors Mm-hmm. yeah and i can see how that's helpful but it, it, to me, I would just say that, you know, if you have a reason, and most most art, the reason comes afterwards anyways, you know. Someone will accidentally make a mistake, and then they'll think, oh, now that creates a new pattern in my brain, creates a new meaning or something for me to explore. And from that error, you know, they can evolve some meaning. So I say run with tiny hands if you want to. <laughs> but, I mean, if it's, it's, it is good because there are these common mistakes, like using the same brush, the same size paintbrush, you know, for the whole entire thing. There's those, those types of things people should be, you know, taught that, you know. Well, there's a certain amount of craftsmanship mm. versus creativity, like, and they're different. You know, right. craftsmanship is one thing, and that can be taught, but creativity, eh, you know, let people do that. That's their own thing. Right, right. Yeah. So there, I'll go back. What that teacher was trying to do was teach the craft of how to do an, uh, an anatomical drawing but not the creative part, but the right, craft. Right, right, And I was always 100% fighting for the creative part. And that's great. It made, we, great, we it made great school. I had so many great peers that it was really helpful to me. And then the teachers, I had like probably three or four teachers that were like really, really super powerful teachers. So... But it was it was torture. It still was torture, even with that. Speaking <laughs> of torture, I have a question. So you have literally like but just used yourself as a self portrait. Do you do you ever do drawings or paintings or anything of anything other than yourself? Sometimes, but usually I put the other things in, in my in the same scene or something. But I have like I did a someone's dog. I did a picture of my neighbor's cat one time because she gave me some ivory type marble, I mean marble slabs for my front yard. So I drew a picture of her cat like standing in her storm door waiting for her to come home, <laughs> stuff like that. But just, you know, not nice things like uh, my girlfriend had a, a precious little ferret and I did a nice portrait of her ferret for, but not, not too much, not usually. Usually I just draw myself like a, two days ago there was someone dumped a whole bunch of furniture right beside my yard and I drew that furniture but then I put it into my self-portrait. I like added my head and my body into how I was feeling about myself that day and stuff. So, Well, but my point then being is, is like do you ever get bored or annoyed or whatever with always using yourself? The thing is, it's always diff. Every day is always something different 
to experience. So I really don't get that too much. But I've come to see, now you can probably appreciate this, you know, you're, you're teaching like the basic elements of design, like principles like value and line and composition and all these types of things. Well, that that's how I grew up or was taught with mark making. But as I began doing these different types of sensory experiments, while I was drawing, I started seeing how different states of experience, elements of experience were influencing how the, the pictures came to be. So that there would be things like time and say focus, that's an element of experience. I could break that focus down into like how much time was spent, how aroused was I, uh, how much stress was I under, and stuff like all of these types of objective ways of grading the picture. And so instead of using, instead of seeing the marks as uh, elements of design, I started coming to see them more as elements of experience. And so this is what I was contributing to how each one was different. Because they'd always say, like, you draw the same thing. If you do the same behavior every day and expect a different result, this is insanity. But if you really pay attention, each day you have different elements of scale of arousal, a different stress scale. You know, you're somewhere else. Like if you charted it on a three-dimensional Cartesian coordinate plane where you are experientially, you're going to be in a different point. And so what I was seeing with all these differences with the marks and the forms and the shapes and the colors and everything was all correlated. This is how I felt. It's not scientific. It's just my feelings. But that's the, the experience was the cause of why it was different each day. I was repeating the same behavior each day, but I was getting a different result. But it was because I was having a different experience each day. I wasn't in the same, I didn't have the same baseline and stuff, this different, different frame of reference. So I, I, there would be times I would be, I would say, okay, I was bored. I only spent 10 minutes on this one today. But when I looked at it from this experiential type of point of view, I'd say, well, it's because I had a negative eight arousal. It's because I was more tired and stuff. All of the feelings, the way I label my feelings, is based on physical bodily sensations and how I interpret those. And so I don't ever get bored with it. I have different experiences. But there's times when, say, like I've never had like an artist block or a writer's block type of thing where you don't have a lack of ideas. I've never gotten that just because I've been building upon the same act. And so if I get to a point where I feel like, okay, these last few days I've had migraine or something, I've been focusing on this and I don't want to be spending all my time focusing on some physical ailment or something like that, then I can say, oh, well, I just look at this list on my fridge of all of the next sensory experiments that I want to do, and then I'll pick another one. Like, say, infrared month, that's probably the next one that I'm leaning towards doing, is just experiencing the world in infrared for 30 days and drawing the whole time. I'm utter, I'm totally fascinated by this. Okay, so sensory experiments is what you call them, right? Yeah, that's, uh -huh. okay. drawing life experiments, sensory drawing and life experiments.
because well, like I noticed in hindsight, of course, I didn't notice this at the time, but like when I move, so like I've lived in like 19 different places in my adult life. And every time I move, like I notice that my work sort of relates to my living standards. So like if I have a big place, my, I work bigger. If I have a smaller place, I work smaller. If I have a sunny place, my work is brighter. If a dark place, you know, yes, so on, so yes, on. So like yes. I notice these things in hindsight after years of doing this, mm. that like these things influence my stuff. So like this so what is it some of the things that you've been trying to sort of learn about these different sensory experiments well see that, that that's exactly what i was talking about because what you're picking up on this is the exact same thing that i experienced too because what you're picking up on is your your internal i think it's experiential that's the right word but I, i've never really talked about it in this way but your elements of experience are having an effect on you and it's changing your zero comma zero comma zero coordinate frame your baseline and see like they they always try to like cognitive psychologists well they they try to have you know a standard normal like a norm or something like with the, like a bell curve and stuff and got the average in the middle and everything they want and they try to put people in this type of frame of reference and then evaluate people based on where they are on these different frames of references but what i've come to understand what i feel like it's not science but this is how i really strongly feel is that this frame of reference this basic norm is always in motion, depending on where you are in your environment and your physiology and how it's the relationship between those two things. And so all of those, the way you're, you're, you notice your elements changing, this is why I started doing the experiments. The first experiments were with my environment because I was having a lot of mental problems at the time and I would like leave my apartment and stuff and I would see like terrible headlines and just advertising and billboards and just different stuff. I felt like I was getting sensory overload too much and I was just really, really getting psychotic and everything. And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to shut off all of this external environment and try to find a basic environment, like a, find my you know, your blank slate tabula rasa that they talk about, which never really can, you can't really find it. But that's what I, where I was thinking is like, I'm going to try to limit my exposure as much as possible, limit my stimulation as much as possible, but then control one aspect of it, which was floodlights. I got yellow floodlights and kept them on 24 hours a day for a month and then did my drawings to see how this would influence me. And then the next month I did red, and then the next month I did blue. Then after that, I took like a vow of silence month. Once I did that, I started becoming aware of how the environment can really shape yourself. But the problem I've had is that because of my mental, my fragile mental state, I've not been able to really explore this as much and like move a whole lot and like live in different places and stuff as much as I'd like to, because a lot of my time is just spent trying to stay healthy mentally and physically healthy. But once I get to this type of basic frame of reference state, then I'll branch out and do a month, you know, of some type of sensory experiment. 
Have you ever tried like things like only using one tool? Like, so let's say like one brush or one color for an entire month kind of thing. So is, is it, is it really about like external sensory experimentation or like or, or possibly like would you, have you ever tried anything with like putting direct limitations on yourself well like i did last year during the pandemic i got a little i guess you'd say bored but my my arousal and my we all got other bored. stuff i did a left hand month i went back to the color months i did two months with pink floodlights and two months green quarantine, pink quarantine. And then I did, I did black. I did a totally formal one, which was unusual for me. I did black on black month, I called it. And I did like just any type of black media on top of other black media, but some black media is more reflective. And so like, I might do like one day, I think I did like ivory painting of myself on top of Moore's black, ivory black on top of Moore's black or like Sharpie on top of Morris black. And so the light reflects on it differently. It has, some of them ended up becoming almost white. So I did a black on black month, but I usually try not to do too much specifically formal months. And when I did the left-hand month, I didn't eat with my left hand and wipe my butt with my left hand and all that type of stuff. I just only did my pictures for that day with my left hand, but it was, it was amazing how fast I adapted to it. I'm kind of drawn to conceptual art. And so there's a part of me with the meaning making that's like my art is not always the pictures. Part of it is how I physically change my brain. And so when I experience these things like being blind for a month or trying to be deaf for a month or using only my left hand for a month, it's like really physically changing the anatomy of my brain when I do this. But because I'm like this folk artist or whatever, not like not a real artist, but an art world type artist, I don't have access to like resources to be able to get MRIs and actually show people here is this changes that I went through. Here's the my artistic documentation of these changes. And then here's these photographic internal neurological changes to, for people to see, you know. Well, that can be done here. I'll give you a recommendation on how you could achieve that is that you go to a university somewhere near uh -huh. you. There's always a professor looking for some new research project and sort of propose that pro that idea as a project, whether it's a uh -huh. neuroscientist or an artist. I'm sure that a university has the resources to be able to do huh. those kind of like MRIs for you kind of thing. Yeah. And you can work together collaboratively because that's the way you'll be able to fund that. I've tried. I've contacted several people that studied things that I was doing, but they never got back to me, but other people have told me that I should contact the grad students, that they reply to people in the email more than the, the regular professors or whatever. I take offense to that as a professor, but it, you're probably right. <laughs> I've kind of thought about doing that, but a, a lot of times, too, I, I think that like when I was looking into getting a thermal cameras for the infrared month, one of the companies, FLIR, their spokesperson or whatever told me that they were going to give me a discount on these things, but they said that it sounded dangerous. And this is a lot of people, They, when I was blind for a month, everyone was really terrified. Oh, that's so dangerous and all this stuff. But 
I mean, if you... But there are blind people who are blind their whole lives. It's not dangerous for them. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that it would be nice to be able to, like, really show, like, here's how the brain physically change the local university that I went to for drawing. One of the students there kept track of my sleep while I was blind for a month, but I don't think it was all of that informative or anything. They've had studies with people in caves, trapped in caves for a long time and stuff with a lot better, I don't know, controls or whatever you would call it or something. I saw an article where it talked about how you used Strathmore 400 notebooks. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I'm a materials person. I love like certain paper qualities and things like this. Like, how did you come to choosing that, and why? And do you still do it? Like, so is every single one you've ever done like on Strathmore 400? No, one person. My I had a cousin that was a very small child. She bought me a sketchbook. I think for Christmas or my birthday. It was. I don't know if it's Canon or Canson or Canson. Yeah, Canson. I think it was that one. And I ended up using that book with her. We did like collaborative ones in there and stuff. And then I've done them on napkins. Well, like once or twice or something. I've done them on that. I've I've done them quite a bit when I was in a group home for people with mental problems. They gave us like sheets with rules on them. Like we couldn't wear perfume and different types of things. And I did my picture on those and then just like glued them in the book. Calendars and stuff like like they would say, we're going to Walmart on this Friday or something. And I would do my picture on that one. Different types of materials. But then, then there's times I've done, I always negate, not always, but I often negate the meanings. I don't know why. And so like, like if I get into this type of precious materials, like if I say I get sued or something and I draw my picture on the court papers, well, Then in my book, I'm like, okay, there's these type of like official government papers or something. Or like if I get a letter from Joe Biden or something with a stimulus, I might do a picture on that, put it in my book or something. But not every time. I don't do it on every single piece of mail. But then I will like find other people's court papers on the street for like domestic abuse, someone has to go to court or drug paraphernalia or something like that. And then maybe that will trigger something in my mind that day, however I'm feeling or thoughts. And so I'll do a picture on that. So people can't go through all my books and say like every single court is my court. Every single photograph is my photograph. You know, it's like the whole world is open. What are you having court documents for? What? No, I'm just saying, like, if I had, like, if I, like, had, uh, like, a court for, like, a bill collection or something like that, like, if I defaulted on credit card or something, and then, you know, they they harass you and... Well, that sort of brings up something that I'm always interested in, is, like, so how, how do you make a living? Well, I get government assistance, and, but they, well, not because of the pandemic, but they were taking it out for student loans. They were... I forget what it's called when they take the money back. They give you the money and then they take it back. Confis- not garnish. They garnish, garnish it. the wages. Something yes. like that. And then. Wait, so you're still paying back student loans? Oh, yeah, because it's a big. I've, well, I've never paid anything on the student loans except for what they've garnished. I'm still paying my student loans. So, like, it's nice to hear somebody else is still paying theirs. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a big scam. 
they recruited me from a homeless shelter without a high school diploma. They picked me up basically off the street, but I, was, I wasn't homeless. I was at the homeless shelter. And they told me that the most I'd ever have to pay is $50 a month. I remember that. Yeah. And the most I'd ever have to pay is $50 a month. And then I graduate and then they say, oh, but that's for each loan during each semester for every year that you were there. So the most I'd have to pay was, uh, I think, $450 a month or something crazy like this. But then right away, I had not too much longer after I was locked in, I was in this one, I rented an office and then I was doing these experiments on myself and then, and I was shutting off from society, having psychotic problems. And then I ended up not paying on the student loans. And then they bank sold my loans to someone else. And then when they did that, they added some fees to it. And then they sold it to other people. And then it got to where every time they would sell it, they would add $30,000 to it. But they never could explain what the $30,000 was for. And so then I sent a letter to Obama when he was president explaining all this to him and said, look, and this was back when I had when I had that gallery for that brief time, I said, $38,000 in student loans is like something that I think one day I would like to be able to afford to pay. But $58,000 was what they put on it with interest total said I owed. But then there's been all these different companies and corporations and stuff that have added $30,000 to it. So we're over $150,000 now. And that's just, it's silly that I will never be able to pay this. And I haven't paid $1 on it, never will pay it. But 38000 is something, you know, I got that education and I got a good one and made the best out of it and everything and hope to one day be able to pay it. But, and then, when I did that, the Department of Education bought my loans back. And then they said, okay, from whoever owned it, they bought them back. And then they said, okay, you have to pay $58,000, not 38, but 58, they said, how are you going to pay it? And I was like, well, I'm still impoverished. I'm still an artist. I'm, I've just got an art show coming up and I'm hoping to have more one day. But I'm, thank you for getting rid of all that fake money and stuff. And then as soon as I sent that, letter back to them, boom, they added $30,000 to it. This pissed me off. So I called them up and I said, now, what, what is the next time I got a bill? There's it's 30, it's eight, uh, 88,000 or 86,000 or something. And I said, now, what, what is that? This is that same $30,000 that keeps magically appearing every time it changes hands. What is that? And they couldn't tell me. So they put me, give me someone else to call. I call them. Okay. They give me their supervisor. I call them. They put me on hold. Finally, they get back to me after like an hour and a half and they say, okay, we found out what this is. This is the estimated cost of recovery fee. And, this, and I was like, what? And they said, this is how much we estimate it's going to cost our company. We, we estimate it's going to cost our company 27000 plus to get you to pay $58,000. And then I say, well, well, how do you figure that? Because I've never paid a single dollar. And you're adding on this $30,000 guarantees that I will never pay you a single dollar because this is not something real. And then, and then they just never sent me emails or never sent me mail, never call me anything. They just, they just keep adding money to it. They probably sold it to someone else by now. It's a horrible scam. I, I'm not a fan of the entire uh, 
institution of like student loans and then the mm-hmm. companies that that prey on people who can't pay back their student loans as well because yeah. it's a it's much it's such a, propri- a, a predatory kind of a thing at this a, yeah. after the fact like when i went into my study and got my student loans it would have been fine like if my student loans if i was just paying back what i borrowed I probably could have had it all paid back by now, but because of all the other these other predatory loan people, the these companies selling them off to other people, and all this other kind of crap, it's it's still ongoing, and it's it's a horribly broken system that America yeah. has with that. I really wish that they could figure out some way to sort of just like get rid of it. I hope that Biden signs that thing into law where he wants to like wipe like thirty thousand dollars out of everybody's student loan debts. That would be amazing. Yeah. That would be good. Uh, it wouldn't even scratch the surface of mine because it's just so so much. A friend of mine, she went to college, didn't run up nearly as much student loans as me. And when Obama was president, they did a program where if you paid $20 a month and never missed a month, never missed a payment for 20 years, the rest of it would be forgiven. And she did this for like two and a half years or something. And then they canceled that program. That's the thing that I keep running into. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, like my problem was, is that at one point they said, if you work for a, uh, like a nonprofit university, so as a teacher or something like this Uh for uh a certain Uh amount of time, then they'll forgive your, your loan. Well, I, I, it was like 10 years or something like that. Well, I worked for nine years and then Uh I changed to a different job and it wasn't a nonprofit. And so all that nine years of work is gone. And I was just like, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's demoralizing is what it, it is. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we, we, we all uh, that go in and get student loans, we go in there with the best of intentions. We want to get a good, good education. We want to get a good job. We want to pay back for the, the gift of like being able to get a good education. But man, they just fuck us on every level so badly yeah. that it, it, it just gets to the point where it's like, I don't even want to talk to you because you're not going to listen to anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one time I called him up. It was a bank or a corporation that owned my loans in Atlanta. I said, okay, they, they were really hounding me. They, this is when I still had a landline before cell phones were popular. And they were like really calling me a lot and really sending me mail all the time. And so I called him up and I said, okay, if I show up with $58,000 in cash or 60,000, I think it was about 60,000 at the time. I said, if I show up with $60,000 in cash to your office in Atlanta, will you report me? Like, what are the laws on this? I said, I'm wanting to pay you, but I'm going to have to do some things that might not be kosher. You know, they might not be like above the board or whatever. And they were like, well, we don't want you to break any laws. And I was like, well, you want me to pay you? Like something's going to, something has to happen here. I'm going to have to do something to get you your money. And I need to know what you're going to do about it if I show up with this money and cash and stuff. And boy, they just kept going in circles, round and round. No, 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 and everything. And then finally, they it, whatever happened in that phone call, they checked whatever box they had to check on the computer and they totally stopped sending me mail, totally stopped phone calls and everything. But then like a year and a half, they just kept adding interest. And then a year and a half later, they ripped some other company off say it's worth $30,000 more than it is, and then they add on to it. It's probably up to about, i say it's over $120,000 again from since when it was reduced to Obama's. They should, I think that they should outlaw those companies. 
Like, I mean, yeah. you know, like what, when, when I went to, when I got a student loan, I went to a, whatever a bank or, a, or the federal government or whatever, the fact that there are these proprietary predatory companies that basically just prey on student loans. I think that that should just be illegal period yeah, because that's just yeah. immoral in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And now with the credit cards, I don't have any credit cards anymore. I've settled them all. But they worked out a deal with the county police in Washington County. I live in Johnson City, but it's part of Washington County, Tennessee. They worked out some arrangement with the police to harass people over credit card bills. I was living in this one building downtown, notorious for a lot of drugs and I guess crime and stuff. There was some murders and stuff there and everything. And I wake up one morning at 530 in the morning. Bam, 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 sheriff's office. So I'm thinking somebody got murdered and they're like trying to find about if anyone heard anything and stuff like that. I open my door and I don't see any white sheets, no bodies or blood or anything like this. And there's no ambulance and fire rescue people or anything. And they hand me a piece of paper, not even like a business card, just a piece of paper with a handwritten phone number on there. Like, you need to call this number. And I was like, what? They said, you need to call this number. And I said, okay. So I called the number and it said, well, our office is closed. It said, said something I didn't understand, like the name of a company or something. So it's, I called them again at like nine or eight whenever they opened up. And it was a, a collection agency. Some collection agency was contract police to come out. The second time they came out, I called the police on the police. I called 911 and said, there's people outside my door claiming to be police. They've got guns and walkie talkies and stuff, but they're really just bill collectors. So they were here before last week. And so I'm trying to find out if it's people impersonating police or what. And they said, no, they're real police. They're supposed to be there. You've got to call that number. After the second police visit, that's what finally got me off my ass to figure out ways to pay off my settle with the credit cards. It does seem inappropriate, though, that the police yeah. are being paid by a private corporation to harass citizens. But And I joined a class action lawsuit like three years later and got $60, $30 a police visit. <laughs> okay, so it is illegal then. So, so okay, so good. Something wasn't quite right, but they were okay. evil. That company, Cavalry Portfolios LLC, they were finding people they owed, finding their CVs online, and then pretending to be like if they worked at AT and T and got fired or laid off, they would call up and say they were Sprint, that they had a job for them. All they had to do was come out and fill out the tax forms and stuff, and they could start working the next day. And these p poor people would go to some high school and think they had a job finally after being laid off for like three years. Show up and it's the police. It's the police in the in, at the basketball court saying you need to call this number. I mean, this is pure evil. All right. This podcast <laughs> is supposed to be about art, not not <laughs> corporate corruption. So let's get back. You mentioned that you, you are a fan of conceptual art. Mm -hmm. Do you have some people, some artists, contemporary artists that like you look to and you admire and respect? I would say Bruce Nauman blew my mind, was a bit left an indelible mark on my brain when I was young. I'd say the biggest art influences on me would be the French Impressionists with the vision. I, I consider them conceptual art because of the way they were doing the experiences of the effect of light on, on them. I would say French Impressionism, Vienna Actionism for sure. And with that, because of the action painting, so I'd say abstract expressionism, the beginnings of it, I would 
be profoundly influenced by that type of ideation. And then feminist artists, the art of the performance art of the 70s, big time, where they were doing all these type of really, well, durational art, like Du Ching She, he did the five years performances where he did one year outside and one year in a cage and one year on clocking the time clock every hour on the hour for a year. That, t- that type of art, for sure. And then it goes back to art that's used in psychology books, too, where they have Lewis Wayne painted the same cat or different cats or whatever under different emotional strains. That, that's how they present his art. And then they have Andy Wilf, Andrew Wilf. He died way too young. He was used in psychology books as examples of someone that was a painter and then went on alcohol and drugs and just killed himself. And you can see like the deterioration of his, they use his art as an example of the deteriorating mind or whatever. That, that type of art is an influence on me, I'd say, too. But there's so so many. I've got a huge a bookshelf. It's almost as big as this this one filled with all of the artists. It's bigger than my body. weighs a lot more than me. And it's full of, like, tons of artists. Installation artists, too, because they're manipulating their environment. Well, I would be neglect if I didn't ask you about the drug stuff, like the the drug series you did. I I did a lot of drugs in my youth, so like I'm fascinated by it. I remember seeing this work way back when it first like sort of hit the whatever the scene and all this stuff. So I've known of you for many years. So I guess my, the one that always struck me that like the thought I had was. Why did you choose those particular drugs? Because there were some really obscure drugs in there. Just whatever came to me at the time. Just when people, like, what started it was there was a lot of different things led up to it. But in my sketchbook, I wrote down, like, this is experiment, and I live in an 11-story building, and there's all these different kinds of drugs in my building. One of the tenants on the third floor had a pill encyclopedia or something, and he, he told me, before I got this idea, he told me that you could find one of every single pill in that book in that building. It had over 100 and some apartments in this building. So, like, I wrote down something like, you know, the this experiment is to draw myself under the influence of one of every kind of drug and just see the results, you know, see how it affects me or whatever. But I only got two weeks into it because it gave me a psychomotor retardation where I couldn't move. Like if you want to like pick up a pencil or something, it takes like a lot longer than usual, but normally your body would be frustrated because you're not picking it up at the speed. But my brain was also retarded so that it was slower too. So I didn't have that inner frustration. It, it was actually really nice, but it, it didn't disturb me. It was just a slower way to be, but it was like, it was really bad. I'd had like some hallucinations real bad on PCP and I can't remember some of the other things, but just whatever came at me. So when I started doing it, people in the building started knocking on my door and giving me stuff saying, here's, here's when I was a kid, we used to huff lighter fluid. So they hand me lighter fluid. I do my picture on lighter fluid. And then a lot of people though, 
when they criticized that at the time that it happened, they were saying like, well, all the pictures should look the same. Like you should have used the same material for each picture or you should have drawn the same pose or something to see the difference or something like that. But these drugs, it's impossible to not be biased or have any expectations about a lot of them because either I'd had them before or I'd see Dave Chappelle do a skit about it or something, you know, and so I'd have, and it's impossible to just block all of this out. And so what I was doing was expounding upon these things that I would think while I was doing it. So if I was doing some drug, like say huffing the lighter fluid, it had like this metallic feeling and it was in a metal can and stuff like that. So I used metallic crayons and and that gave rise to the fumy appearance. It looks like my eyes are glassed over, but it's because of the reflect, the slight reflectivity of the Crayola crayons metallic. Well, I understand their idea of sort of having a controlled set of Mm -hmm. resources to then be able to see truly like differences in the, the quality of the drawings based on that. If you had the same stuff, but like, I'm thinking on the other side of it, like, yeah, but it, let's say you chose charcoal to be your, your medium, but then you did LSD. Like, charcoal right. could not express LSD. Right, right. The thing that you're mostly controlling is motor skill. The, the only thing you'd really be showing evident is how that drug affected your motor skill. Like, if you just used a drawing pencil, like a graphite pencil, and every picture was the same mirror, the same distance away, the same close and that actually this is kind of what i've done since then i have done experiments like this since then combining comparing and contrasting alcohol with cannabis but what i have to do is i have a checklist it's it's a real ocd type of checklist but everything has to be the exact same like the temperature uh, that my hair length the same clothes have to be washed I have to eat, be eating the same food, weigh the same amount. I have to have the same basic frame of reference. All of that that I... Wait, okay, wait. Do you keep these records, like, with yeah. the drawings? Yeah, it's like a code on the bottom of the self-portraits. Really? Okay, wait. Tell me about yeah. this code. So what what do you put in this code? The, the reason why I ask is because, like, I've known many artists that do this kind of thing where they put a code in their work kind of thing or put it on the back of the canvas or something. And I'm always fascinated by these things. So, like, what do you put – what's your code? Like, what's the set of stuff okay. you put there? One of the, the most important aspect of the element of experience is focus. And so how I evaluate that focus – well, it's probably backwards on the on your video, but the amount of time spent – completeness like how completed the picture was and 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 that that sounds like it's kind of subjective but i have an objective way of scoring completeness by breaking it down into five sub qualities or elements which are shading texture background environment and edge attachment and i give each one of those can be if there's like just a little bit of shading that's a one if the if all of it all of the image is shaded that's a two with those five things, it can come up to a score of 10, but I've got this for a, not just the time span. I have a, a scale where it's exponential increase in time. 
And then it's broken down into where it also goes to a score of 10. And so all of these different things are based on a score of 10. And then I can add them up and then divide them by the number and then come out with an evaluation of how, how focused I was when I made that picture. But wait, now these are written on like, so if I were to see an original one of these pieces written physically at the bottom of the image is all of this statistical information. Because like when I see your pictures like online, I guess they cropped that off. Yeah, you don't necessarily see it all, but you'll have like a date here. Oh yeah. Okay. So you actually do like write all of the statistical data, but, but it's not, if I'm reading it correctly, it's not, it doesn't say like temperature, blah. It just like has adjusted the, the, the points. So you need that right. legend of what you did, of what they mean that you have somewhere else. That's the score sheet. The evaluation <laughs> sheet is the legend. I love that you have a legend for these like codes that you put on the bottom of your pieces. You can read it like this. It's it's written as a set of coordinates because eventually they're to be graphed. I can send you a link with there's an actual three-dimensional graph that you can go in and and navigate around off your mouse and you can see how these pictures are in are placed inside of this experiential graphing system that I've worked okay. on. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, so, send me the link. I'll put it in the show notes for the listeners to look at. Okay, cool. F it says F 5.2, or no, yeah, F 5.2, which is focus is a 5.2 out of 10. And then the first, and then it says point or negative point, negative 2.5 to negative 3. That's how I would plot this picture on there. And then it has an, another set here, which is really important. This SE hyphen V slash SI hyphen C stands for external vision. I used my external vision, like I looked in the mirror or I could have looked at a photograph, but I looked at, or looked at my shadow, something that I used my actual vision to make that the picture. So I started off with my external vision, but then I finished the picture with my internal cognition. But there's different elements of that. So there's the focus that has the time spent, completeness, types of perception. Because it's really about taking drawing as a form of analysis. That's one of the way, one of the tools that I use it for. It's like a way to analyze my condition or my state at the t at the time of making it. Now, when I go back and try to reevaluate them, if I'm close in the same state, I'm closer to being able to replicate the evaluation. But if my condition is extremely different at the time that I evaluate it, there's going to be like a, like a plus or minus, like, you know, a couple points different. So these, these, these <laughs> I love this. The so the statistical information that you put at the bottom of the image, you put at the time of creation. Because right. the reason why I think about that is because if I were to make a piece of art and then like sit it down and come back to it a week later and look at it, I might have a different feeling right. about it. You have it. a different baseline, different frame of reference. Yeah. Because that, 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 that zero, 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 zero center axis of the graph, it's always moving. But I don't know how to really plot that. Uh, I'm, the guy that made it online I'll, that I'm going to send you the link to, when I first was getting mental health help in my adult years, this is probably 98, 
98, maybe 99, they said, whenever I'd have a mental problem, they would say, and they didn't know what it was caused by, they would say it's stress. This is stress related. Like your psychotic, your auditory hallucinations are being caused by stress. If they didn't know it was being caused by something else. And so I was having uh, symptoms like I wasn't eating very much. I was having, I was really starving and I was having a lot of negative symptoms of that, but they didn't think to ask me how my diet was. And so they were misdiagnosing me. And at one time they were misdiagnosing me as having a schizo, schizo something, schizo affective or. Yeah. Schizo affective disorder. Something like this, but, but really a lot of it was because of my diet. I wasn't getting enough food. I just didn't have enough food to eat. When I, I came up with the idea to score, originally I had a vision of all of my pictures on a giant wall graphed like a flat graph. And I would, so I could see like, I could step back kind of like Chuck Close. I could step back and see, here's how many I was happy. Here's how many I was sad. Here's how many I was angry. Here's how many where I was afraid and just have some basic minimal type of simple way of evaluating my feelings using the pictures as the, as the evidence or the data. And I always thought, well, I'm just going to keep making the data and not work on the evaluation system too much and then until I get enough data. But then, you know, a, a decade later, I realized that it takes years to develop the evaluation system and the graph. And I needed to do that first because of this moving access point. We're never in the same zero, zero. I mean, we are really close often from day to day if we're living a drab life, not getting much new stimulation. We often are at that same point, but our body physiologically is set for homeostasis to try to be the same, but it can get kicked off, you know, with weight gain and you get a progressive cycle of getting heavier and heavier. And so you, you can get away from your physiological frame, your, your, I just call it like a center line, center baseline reference or whatever. But so when I came up with this simple, let me just finish this graph, how I came about the graph. So I thought, well, every feeling has a, an arousal level, like some feelings, you got a lot of energy, some feelings, and originally I call it energy, not arousal, and some feelings are like negative energy. And then I thought on how to, that would be the up, at the vertical axis, and then on the center, horizontal axis was what I called just evaluation, uh, social evaluation, because some feelings society says are positive and some feelings everyone says are negative, you know? And so then like rage or something would be negative social evaluation and like joy or something would be positive. But now like fear, when I was plotting this out, they would say like fight or flight. And so you think fear would be like high arousal positive social evaluation because fear is what keeps us from like standing on train tracks and stuff like that. But really when I was trying to put, put all these feelings side by side on this graph, I came across something else where they said fight, flight, or freeze. And fear really was more freeze, negative energy. It, it became the times where I drew myself, where I was afraid, I was like frozen and real stiff and my arms are my, it's almost geometrical body. 
real rigid and everything like that. And so, so I thought, well, this is negative arousal. But then I thought, well, how could I bring this out into three-dimensional space and have these pictures suspended in a way that people could actually walk around through in the museum or whatever? And then I thought, I went to the psychiatrist or something of some mental problems, and then they said, that's stress-related. And I said, that's what the Z-axis is, is stress. Because every single feeling that's pos- on the positive side of stress, you know, like you, your, your happiness and your joy, if you bring that out into the three-dimensional space through negative stress, this is your delusions of grandeur. This is your hypomania and stuff like that. This is how society would deem this as the negative social evaluation of the negative stress of the what could be assumed as a positive feeling. And so then once I got that, I started building onto it more and more, trying to determine what causes arousal, what causes stress, or what, you know, or not necessarily causes it, but what are the objective features of it that I could score this subjective type of experience with or two or whatever. Strangely enough, I followed all of that and I, I totally understand. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I've been through therapy myself in my lifetime. So like, I get it. I understand all this. And to a certain extent, I have a little bit of OCD about being organized in this kind of way, though I have to admit you're a bit more than me. <laughs> that's all right uh, I don't but there's times where I mess with the evaluation and then I I do it and then there's times when I break from it because I'll be confronted with an error in my definition of something and so then I'll like kind of go back to the drawing board and like I won't mess with it I'll mull it over and stuff like that like I really need to go back valence is what I ended up changing social evaluation to. I ended up, the horizontal axis is now called valence. And so that's one of the, that's the center coordinate number. And then the the last of the coordinates is stress. But eventually, I think what I'm going to do is go through my scans. When people go to evaluate how they're feeling, their emotions, They'll like look for past experiences and memories to compare it with or other people's experiences of say, like if someone says like, oh, I'm feeling bad. And then you ask yourself, like, am I depressed or something? All of this is happening spontaneously, subconsciously. And then your brain spits out like sullen or whatever your your emotional vocabulary morose provides for it i like that. yeah <laughs> i don't have a big vocabulary of emotional words which i should work on but th- that triggers that evaluation but then i think because i have them all in on scanned in and on files and stuff i can go back and see every single one So I can go and find like all of the times I was afraid and I have a folder for that and all of that. So then I could look at it on a, I could arrange those pictures basically in a, in a scale from like one to 10 or something and have like the the worst, the times that I think would be the most fearful versus the least fearful, you know, like irrational fear might be on on the left side of the scale in the real fear where I was under a real serious threat of being bit by a rattlesnake or something. When I drew it, that would be like on the far end of the scale 
or when I was on a roof with my legs hanging over the edge real high up on a building and was afraid, stuff like that. And then I would be able to even narrow it, the subjectivity down even more. And then once I have like this visual frame of reference, I can continue to use that as I evaluate my like thumbnails, basically be like looking at thumbnails and then use that as a frame of reference for how I feel. But the great thing about drawing every day and doing sticking with the same subject matter myself the whole time is that I can see where I'm see, I don't know how to explain it. I can see the past in such a bigger way than I could if I was just relying on my own brain because all of this information is stored outside of me. So I can like see my past from a much more macroscopic view, macroscopic perspective, which allows me to be able to increase the perspective of my potential and my future. Because say if I see myself as happy and I look at my all my happy pictures or ha- watch the happy video or whatever, and I can like remember all of these times that I naturally couldn't remember on my own without this external help. It allows me to see patterns inside of that that'll say, wow, like all of the ones, most of these pictures say are made with children. My most happiest times in my life have been in the presence of children. Say I learned this about myself. Well, then I can say now that I know that I could do a whole month experiment where I only work with my little cousin or something and just have like, you know, make a happy month. And then and use my past to not just predict my future, but actually shape it in ways or something like that. I, I don't really know how to link them together, but it happens in my brain naturally now. It, it makes sense. I mean, memory is fallible. So like, you know, when I sit back and think about like, oh, I was happy at this time, but realistically, maybe I wasn't happy. But like, you know, so like having yeah, some yeah. sort of quantifiable scale like you've created is quite fascinating. Like I used to think, oh, I've get headaches a lot. But because I've drawn every single headache for the last 26 years plus, I can like actually number them and see how many they compared to how many days there were in a year and how many times I've had headaches. And so like spontaneously, our brains are constantly thinking for us and we have to like consciously make choices about if we want to accept whatever this spontaneous generation is providing. But because I'm keeping the drawings or records of the experiences, it helps cut down on that internal bias. But the, the one problem with that scientifically, this is why it's not scientific and a lot of it still goes back to my feelings, is what I choose to draw in the day. Like if I didn't choose to draw every single headache or if I didn't, if I, if I only chose, there's like subconscious things that are choosing when I draw in the day that I'm not consciously aware of. But I'm hoping by keeping track of all of this information and all of this data and the evaluation system and everything, what I'm hoping is that eventually there'll be a way to plug it in to some type of a program or app that will end up being able to provide me with more information that I can't consciously perceive myself. 
it'll be able to show me like, you know, well, the times when my arousal is this and my stress is this and my feelings are this, I'm more inclined to do skeletal myself more as skeletal or something or, you know, like court regressions and correlations and things that I'm unable to perceive with my natural brain or whatever. All right, this is running really long. So oh. my last, my last question that Are I wanted to ask edit about, it? Uh, probably not as much as you would okay. think, <laughs> but a little bit. I will okay. edit a little bit, but not very much because, okay. it, I mean, I it, this is meant to be a conversation. Okay. So it is. I was just curious. It's exciting. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> well, okay, so I I'm, I have a question, and I'm not sure quite how to phrase it quite right. So please, I want to be, be sure, like, please don't take offense to this question because uh -huh. I'm trying to, f I, I want to understand it. Uh -huh. Okay, uh, historically through the arts uh, in every medium, so, you know, writers, uh, musicians, visual arts, whatever, there's a long history of mental illness. There's a long history of uh, uh, drugs and addictions and all these kinds of things. And I'm, I'm fascinated because, of course, I, I have addictions. I've done lots of drugs, and I probably have a little bit of mental illness. So, what, like, do, it, it, do you feel like it's the, the, the use of the drugs but the mental illness that has sort of assisted or created you as a creative person or what were you always a creative person and then somehow the mental illness and the drugs came later like how do they sort of mix together well i think that's in my brain it's two different th categories of thought the way mental in my brain the way i feel mental illness and drugs and creativity or it's a bad word. It's not the right word, but I don't know a better word to say it. But to me, it all involves what I call a broken brain or breaking the brain. But it's not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily broken. But so like say a person, they have their like their brain that they're working with and then they take a drug. That drug break something in their brain it like breaks down the way they're able to perceive patterns or pay attention to novelty or something people that are mentally ill they have this kind of a similar thing where their patterns aren't being patternized i don't know their brains aren't doing patterns the same way they're not taking in information in this the same way as other people or something as like the norm or whatever and then and creativity comes from breaking patterns. So it, it would come from like a breaking your brain. But the thing that's different with all of them is that creativity creates something I feel. This is just my personal feeling, is that creativity creates something useful, utilitarian or something. I'm more one of these function type persons, like doing stuff for for getting a, like a, a practical, pragmatic or practical use out of things. And so for me, creative things that I find are creative, well, there's an, an exception on that with inspiration because a lot of things cannot have a function but can be really inspiring to me that can still be creative. But for me, most of the things that I find creative are things that are useful. And so if I break my brain through drugs or th through choosing to be mentally ill on purpose and doing behaviors that would cause such a thing, 
If I was to do that and then not get anything useful out of it, it would be just breaking my brain. It would be just pointless and just self-harm or injuring my brain. But now if there's some type of use, something can be done with it, then it's, to me, I consider it, that's how I define it as creative, if something can be done with it. Except there's things that people do, people make some paintings that aren't necessarily creative to me, but they're inspiring to me in some way or another. And then I will still, in my brain somehow, I will still confuse and define it as being creative because it has still serves a function as inspiring energy and changing my condition at the time of perceiving it and stuff. Marvelous. Yeah. I, I hope that someday somebody, some, some institution, a library, a research facility, whatever, will want your entire life's work because I think it's, it's something that will be studied by academics in the arts field as well as in the psychological field. So I, I think it's a great project. That's my big hope. But I worked at a museum one time and I've seen them deaccession stuff and throw stuff in the garbage, you know. It's just the institution is what it is and I don't have a lot of faith in it, but I love them more than galleries. <laughs> we can agree on that. <laughs> For like a I would say like maybe like a universe a research university's University. library. Yeah. But they're their library because they don't generally deacquisition collections. Yeah. I, I think it could be cool, but at the same time I just don't know if people I mean people I've thought about making a YouTube like basically an educational video explaining this whole chart thing in case I died accidentally, then people could know how to, you know, read it or whatever, all this stuff. But and there's still a lot more to it that I didn't tell you about because it's it's a pretty long evaluation system. Be sure that somebody knows how to to like give give somebody else the legend to the key so they can figure it all out. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been great fun. Awesome. I've had a blast too. (laughs) Sorry for talking about credit cards too much. (laughs) Oh, don't you you worry about that. that If you want. (laughs) No, no, no. I, I, I really wish more people would would you know be aware of the the problems that arise with like creative people who end up with financial problems like no no i'm all for it i tell you too though not having this is one really important thing that she's got to add this one important thing about being uh really bad off impoverished not having money for a long time one great thing is it forced me to focus on what's happening inside my body stimulation wise, because I wasn't able to just really go gallivant around a lot. Like I I, I wish I could live in different places a lot and move around a whole lot. But at the same time, by staying so living in abject poverty, it really forced me to focus on my own body as a source of stimulation. And so that's really been a big major factor in it in allowing me to go as far as I have and there's still so much more that people can do with their bodies, too. I think of so many different things. I have a big, long list, and I hope I can get them done one day of experiments I want to do. Just sense, just different sensory experiments with drawing. It's like the possibilities. It's wide, wide open. 
I look forward to seeing them. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you. You are most welcome. And have a great evening. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the podcast as much as I am. I've learned about many things I did wrong in my career and many things I need to put more effort into in the future. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Conceptual Citizen for their five-star rating. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information on Instagram at the Wise Fool Pod, or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com.